Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, the reason that this podcast is coming to our listeners one day later than usual is because we uh, we took off on Monday and we decided to spend that extra day putting together a group to make a bid against A-Rod and J-Lo for the Mets. How's the, how's the group going? Have we talked to all of our favorite billionaires yet? Yeah, we're, we're actually starting a crowdfunding campaign. And frankly... I think we could probably have a pretty good job if we got on Twitter and said, hey, Mets fans, let's buy the team, bid for one share of this. I think we could do it. We would I, only be a, like the, the 178th Mets fan campaign to buy the Mets that failed. Yeah, <laughs> <Honestly>. <laughs> yeah we need like we need a big celebrity endorsement is what we need. Maybe A-Rod and J-Lo. Yeah, there you go. Maybe we get Jeter on board. Yeah, you know? who has who has beef with Arod and JLo that we could get in to go against them? Yeah. I'm referring, of course, to the news that that came out in the New York Post last week that the the Mets are still for sale, which has been known to the public for a while now, but that uh Arod and JLo are actually serious about buying the Mets and they're trying to get a group together to purchase them. Obviously, Arod and JLo don't have enough money between the two of them to outright buy a controlling share of the Mets. So that's like ha- that's the thing is you say obviously, but like that's not even an obvious thing to me. Like if Arod was like I have I want to buy the Mets and I have the money to do it, I would be like, "Okay." Really? I I feel like you cannot like athletes can't get rich enough to buy sports teams unless you also know like a separate income revenue for that athlete. Like you can't get rich enough to buy a team just off athlete salary. I have you seen his motivational YouTube videos? This guy has money streams coming in hey, from bro. from everywhere. Monetizing YouTube videos isn't what it used to be. <laughs> Read think pieces in the Atlantic about that all day long. What are their net worths? Look it up for me. Yeah, so I was just looking it up. Jennifer Lopez is worth. She's definitely worth more than him. Yeah, yeah, four hundred million. Yeah, that's pennies, bro. That's pennies in baseball. Four hundred million. That's like a Mike Trout contract. Boom, you're bankrupt, J Lo. <laughs> As we know, baseball teams don't make money. Owners pay exclusively out of pocket. And uh, and A Rod is worth three fifty million. So they're worth Damn, three quarters of him. a billion dollars. That's like a quarter of what it takes to buy a controlling share of the Mets. <laughs> yeah, but you you know that both of them have like millions and hundreds of millions on offshore bank accounts that you know celebrity net worth stars dot biz can't account for. Yeah. Yeah, all of that money is totally clean. I, I yeah. bet. Yeah. Celebrity 100%. net worth stars dot biz. Is that what you looked it up? I would have thought that you would have just gone to Forbes. No oh, Forbes for- on this podcast. We don't support Forbes. No Forbes. We don't support it. We support our uh Only small our local businesses. celebrity <laughs> net worth trackers. Tipping pitches for small businesses. Uh what do you what do you think of this? We have a good episode coming up. Uh we, we talked to Kyle Banduho of Big Screen Sports about the the baseball stories that we would want to see turned into documentaries um and that's coming up a little bit later kyle was nice enough to have us on uh his podcast big screen sports 
to discuss our favorite fictional baseball games and ones that we would want to attend. That was back in, I think, February or late January. And and so we returned the favor and he joined us for for this podcast. Uh, but I just want to know, I got to know, because it's not every day that we get relevant baseball news. So I got to know what you think of this. A-Rod, owner of the Mets. I mean, it feels pretty perfect, right? I mean, if Derek Jeter was going to buy the Marlins, like what other like fail son baseball organizations out there to buy? Come on. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) No, no digs at the Mets, but like, but like, you just called them fail sons. (laughs) Are you going to dispute that? Have you seen who's running this team? You're right. I mean, I I do like that A Rod would buy the crosstown rivals of the the Yankees. Not that like at the end of the day, anyone really gives a shit who owns what major league baseball team. Like they're those guys at the top are all on the same team, regardless. I think it's more just like among celebrities <laughs> I want to see. <laughs> among they're celebrities on the money I want. I want like Rihanna to buy a baseball team. Like if there's yeah. a if there's a celebrity who I really want to make an investment to to buy a baseball team, it's probably her. I said this when the A Rod story first leaked, and I'll say it again. It's fine. I'm fine with A Rod being the control person for a baseball team. That I might this might come back to bite me saying something like this so definitively, but it can't be worse than the Wilpons one. Two, A Rod knows baseball. He's been a front office advisor for the Yankees basically since he retired halfway through his final playing season. And in baseball, the way that the CBA is structured, only one person gets to be the quote-unquote control person. So only one person out of an ownership group has the final say on signing off on baseball activities from the GM. So I'm fine with that person being one of the smartest thinkers about baseball of all time, Alex Rodriguez. But it gives me pause when there are... One of the smartest baseball thinkers of all time? Is that what you said? Bro, he's done his homework. He's basically like LeBron if LeBron was uh like 50% more corny. I feel like and did a lot of steroids or played a sport where people cared that he did steroids because LeBron's on hella HGH. Different <laughs> conversation for a different day. I feel like I feel like A-Rod is good at pretending. Like he's the he's the kid who in in like high school who passed all his tests because he did really well, but he was like kind of cheating a little bit. And I'm not even talking about like steroids or anything. Like I don't give a shit about that. I just think he's like good at he knows what like a smart person should look like, right? Which is why we talked about those YouTube videos that like had zero substance to them. Like he's gonna buy the Mets and instead of making the team good, he's just gonna bring Pete Alonso in to talk about how like failure is just a mindset. And like you <laughs> You can reach the peak if you want to. So, okay, that's all true. Whatever. Maybe I overstated it, but A-Rod and Jeter would be the two smartest baseball owners when it comes to baseball knowledge, right? Nobody knows baseball better than Hall of Famers Alex Rodriguez and Derek Jeter. I know Alex Rodriguez is not going to make the Hall of Fame because of steroids, but are there 28 other owners in baseball who know more about the game of baseball than them? Not business, not mindset, not finance, whatever. I mean, just literal baseball. I mean, maybe not, but I will also point to Derek Jeter as the exact reason why that doesn't even matter because (laughs) he bought the Marlins and just sold it for parts. So what are you going to do? True. But anyway, the part that gives me pause is actually similar to 
the reason that it sucks that Derek Jeter owns the Marlins. It's because Derek Jeter doesn't actually outright own the Marlins. He's part of a big group of people that owns the Marlins and part of a, uh, and one of those people is Bruce Sherman, who is a penny pinching asshole. And when you get big ownership groups together like this, you're so likely to get a bunch of rich white dudes who are putting in a smaller investment for their team, so are more likely making a smaller dividend of the profits and therefore want the profits to be maximized so that they can make the most money possible. It's like you are setting yourself up to spend less money because all of these people have a smaller portion of the pie but still want to make the same amount of money as all of the other baseball owners. It's like we've seen this happen as ownership groups start to start to become more popular in other sports. Like this is what's going on in the NBA in a lot of places right now. It's like they, nobody wants to pay the luxury tax because there's 13 guys who don't want to pay the luxury tax now as opposed to just one really rich guy who's like, whatever, I bought this team for my ego. Like, I don't think A-Rod is going to be able to like be like I, I really like I really like Garrett Cole. I really think we should sign him. And then he's sitting in a room full of like 13 hedge fund bros who like want to buy their thir- third home in the Hamptons and they're like, I don't really care if Garrett Cole's on the Mets. I don't really care if the Mets win. I go to three games a year to impress my kid who I don't talk to for the rest of the year. <laughs> Dunk on them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might be true, but but they haven't talked to Jenny on the block yet. And and frankly, that's, that's what that's really matters. True. She's going to be in the boardroom and she's going to be wielding the real power. That's the wild card. Okay, let's get to our, uh, our sports talk segment with Kyle Banduho. Uh, but before we do that, I'm Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Basley. And this is Tipping Pitches. All right, Kyle Banduho is here, host of Big Screen Sports. Kyle was nice enough to have us on his podcast about a month and a half ago. Uh, time has passed very strangely since that moment. Um, yeah, Kyle, what's been going on, guys? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Tipping Pitches. How are you, man? I'm doing great. I'm really, I'm excited to to be on y'all's pod. I really appreciate the invite. Uh, weird times, things. It's been a lifetime since we all recorded. We had you on in the in the old world, I believe. He had that us was on. The, uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, you had us on in the old world. <laughs> P PQ pre pre quarantine. So if you didn't if you didn't see it back when back when that happened, we went on Kyle's podcast, Big Screen Sports, where they go through different sports movies, break them down, run through some categories. And we went on for a special segment to talk about the best uh, baseball games that are shown in baseball movies. And uh, it was a lot of fun. So go back and check that out. Uh, You'll see that podcast on this feed later this week. But um, for today's purposes, we are going to do our dream baseball documentary. So Kyle is nice enough to join us for this. Uh, Before we, before we do all that, before we get into our doc pitches, before we, get the attention of the Netflix executives. Um, I want to talk to you guys about just your relationship to sports documentaries, documentaries in general. We're kind of on a little bit of a Michael Jordan, the last dance wave right now. It seems like the only thing, the only monoculture at the moment. Um, So Kyle, why don't you start us off? Uh, Maybe your favorite sports documentary, just do you watch a lot of sports docs? What's up? What's up with you there? Yeah. I mean, I, I try to, I think it's kind of, the episode of uh, of my podcast we did at the, at the end we kind of talked about like what's going on with with actual scripted sports movies and how it's been kind of a decline in a sense and I think we're in especially in the last ten years really since the advent of thirty for thirty I think we're in really like peak season for like peak era for sports documentaries like 
ever since 30 for 30 started, I mean, you can, I mean, if you, if 30 for 30 were the only sports documentaries that were, were coming out now, we'd still be in really good shape. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, whenever some, whenever one of those comes out, I, I think that's where the conversation starts. There's, you know, I could list off a ton of them that I love. Um, recently it, last year, two that I saw, and they're two completely different ones. Uh, Maradona, the Diego Maradona documentary that came out last year on, I, I think HBO, I'm pretty, I, that was excellent. That's Asif Kapadia, whose name I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, but he did uh, Senna. He also did the Amy Winehouse documentary. Um, that I mean, it's it's kind of recency bias, but that might be my favorite of all time. I, it just it just blew me away, and I knew very little about Diego Maradona before I watched it. And then another that came out last year, it was also really enjoyable. And the opposite of Maradona was Screwball from Billy Corbin on Netflix about biogenesis and the whole A Rod thing and. Um, I thought I knew a lot about that and I didn't. It was really, I, 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 <laughs> so I could have actually, seen, yeah, I actually could have, could have done more of that. But, um, the first sports documentary I really remember resonating with me is it was on a very, like, it was right when Netflix started streaming stuff was, uh, was Pelotero featuring a teenage Miguel Sano. It was about him and another guy who were July 2nd signings in this like back when he was 15 and a stick. It was like it was many meals ago from Miguel Sano and just really interesting look at being a um, baseball player in the Dominican. And so ever since then, like I've, you know, those are the ones that really stick out to me and, you know, everything in 30 for 30, the pony excess, the U um best that never was i really love benji uh there's just a lot of i mean we're in a really good time for sports docs do you think that there's like is there ever a worry you think of kind of like oversaturation kind of of the market because especially like right now with all these streaming platforms that are really i think trying to like capitalize off the the moment i mean netflix churns out document like i'm they have probably have a camera on me right now just in case i do something stupid that they can I turn didn't into tell a you documentary that. 3 or 4 years from now i i sold the rights to the tipping pitches documentary to hulu already so you're good on the netflix front Okay, dope. Sounds good. Perfect. <laughs> no, but I feel I feel like it's the kind of thing that um that it's so there's always so much coming at you that it's very hard to to like kind of keep track of of like of like what is the one that you need to be in on. And obviously everyone is watching The Last Dance that has been much hyped. Um but I don't know, kind of what's your take on the on the landscape of sports stocks right now? I mean, it's kind of like the perfect storm for The Last Dance. Like everyone was going to be in on The Last Dance regardless. Um, just because of what it is. But now the fact that there's no sports at all, I think is uh, obviously, I mean, th- this no sports situation isn't like good for anyone, but for the last dance, it's kind of good. Uh, but I, I think there there obviously is a worry for oversaturation. I think that's just kind of like the the content situation we're in in general. There's so much, I live my life behind one TV show at a time. Like there, there's so much yeah. stuff to where there's just so much available. So there is kind of that worry for oversaturation. I feel like if there's a sports documentary that I'm going to be into, it's going to be something that I'm going to prioritize and I'm going to see it. But that might not be the thing. You know, there are probably going to be a lot of really good sports documentaries that fall by the wayside or just go kind of unseen by 
a, a normal percentage of the culture that would have seen them in in the past, like back when it was just Netflix and whatever 30 for 30 ESPN was putting out as opposed to now there's great sports docs on every streaming service. Yeah, I think that's the thing about like the first the first season of 30 for 30, like didn't burn all of their good ideas. And, and they also just didn't seek to do what would in what would be the quote unquote most popular documentary. They weren't like, let's follow LeBron around for the year before he makes his decision or anything and put it out right in the moment, even though that would probably make a great documentary and it would make it even better documentary in 30 years because it would just be the last dance, but with LeBron. Um, and I feel like a lot of those stories that they chose were like weird kind of one-off stories that I either hadn't heard of or had only read the Wikipedia page for or will at one point come up in our Alex Baisley Wikipedia deep dive segment that we've been doing at the end of podcasts for the last month or so. But I feel like we are in a good place. I mean, for me, it was like the first doc that rocked my world was like Fab Five, you know, where I was like, I don't really really know like any of these guys that well because all of them were basically out of the league by the time I started becoming a hardcore basketball fan, um, I don't know, like let's narrow in a little bit on baseball documentaries because I feel like it might just be because baseball is a little bit out of favor, pop culturally speaking, but I don't, I feel like there are fewer of them. I mean, you mentioned a couple up top Kyle, but I, there isn't like a baseball doc that baseball fans hold near and dear the way that people might hold this Jordan documentary near and dear in the future or the way that people hold like hoop dreams in their hearts. There's even fewer, there's definitely fewer baseball 30 for 30s. Yes. Um, the one that sticks out for me the most, I think, is Catching Hell, the Bartman one. Um, I think when we recorded last, we coined the term going full Bartman. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there's like, there's the uh, the Little League World Series one. Uh, there's a really underseen one about fantasy baseball. I think it was called like funny little game or something little. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's baseball docs are less in the, the, the zeitgeist really the there's two that jump. It's kind of funny too, that there's fastball and knuckleball that have been made. I think in the, I think in the last 10 years, the knuckleball one was right around when RA Dickey was big. And then, um, fastball. Cy Young winner, R.A. Dickey. Yes, please. Cy Young. Yeah, that is Cy Young pro R.A. Dickey podcast. Cy Young winner, R.A. Dickey. Uh, man, he what a coup for the Mets. Like, just when you think about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he wins a Cy Young and then you turn him into Noah Syndergaard. Any this, we're talking sports docs. Um, and then, yeah, and then there's fastball, too. Uh, yeah, there, I mean, there's just less, there's just fewer. There's really kind of like what you said. There's not one that, that jumps out. Pelotero is the one that jumps out to me. And it was, it's, it's definitely over close to 10 years old now, at least Miguel Sano has got to be, he's like 25, I think. Yeah. So it's, um, it's right around there. Yeah. And I think that like, I mean, I don't know if it has to do at all with kind of what we have discussed on this podcast before which is like the kind of lack of incredibly like colorful personalities around the the sport of baseball as it might be in other sports but i also feel like there's this kind of like weird reverence 
for the game. I mean, the obvious baseball documentary we haven't mentioned is just the Ken baseball. Burns, yeah. which is baseball. Yeah, yeah, which is like ten hours long. And like, why would you make a baseball documentary after that? But it I is, know, did that just like kill? Did that just market correct every baseball doc after that? It just it, killed it on the vine. It's yeah. almost like such a different. <laughs> When you think of documentary, though, you almost don't think Ken Burns is like a Ken Burns is almost its own genre. Yeah, like Ken Burns, like the Great War and Civil War, whatever. Like those are almost their own different kind of movie than the documentary that we might think of when it comes to a sports doc. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And even and even the ones that we are have gotten in the last few years, like Fastball and Knuckleball, like you mentioned, like focus a lot more on like the kind of like beautiful intricacies of one very specific slice of the game as opposed to kind of i guess panning out and looking at like how it interacts with the with like the culture around it and like labor dynamics in it which i think is like something that i i enjoy seeing from sports documentaries pelotero like you mentioned um takes that really interesting perspective of like what it looks like as a kid from latin america trying to make your way to the major leagues like that's like that's a perspective that i that I just never see before. I want to know how a knuckleball works, but I also just I can I can watch a million million of them on YouTube, and I'll be I'll be fine. I'm okay with that. I do. You guys watch a lot of documentaries, like in the sports or non sports. Do you find yourself yearning to watch a doc on like a Wednesday night? I not like on a random Wednesday. A doc is usually something that's appointment viewing for me. Like it's planned. It's I I, I rarely be like. I'm rarely spur of the moment, but it's planned. I do actually, I, I can't believe I forgot this. Um, I, I watched a doc really recently. That's a, it's a recent streaming release. It's called 50 summers. It is about that. Um, it's 50 years of, it's kind of like 50 years of minor league baseball history as told through the Omaha franchise. Cause it, the Omaha franchise has been affiliated with the Royals for the last 50 years. And it's really cool mix of minor league history and also how a minor league franchise interacts with both its city, how it serves as as much of a entertainment fan experience vehicle as an actual baseball vehicle. A um, lot of good like names associated with it. JJ Cooper from Baseball America was was heavily interviewed. Um, Warren Buffett, maybe you've heard of him. Uh, it, it really, really cool from um guy director was Dan Napoli producer Bill Hipsher they it was um a really really great kind of fresh documentary I just I just need to shout it out because it's on Amazon right now I really enjoyed it and it's something that if you're missing minor league baseball that's a good look and um another one that is kind of like that is battered bastards of baseball yeah that's a which great is one. On, which is on Netflix that is more kind of like less about the intricacies of baseball, like what Alex was talking about with like a certain pitch and more about just kind of like that experience that battered bastards of baseball, such like a unique one, really like a, like a unique cyclone of this weird indie ball team from the seventies. Yeah. And, and kind of like strips away that veneer of, and like glamor of, of baseball. Right. And it's like Mm -hmm. 80% of the time, like you're just trying to play, until tomorrow, right? Like you're not necessarily getting paid like tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. Like the vast majority of baseball players around the country are like, have no idea what that next paycheck is going to look like and whether they're going to be out of the game a year from now. That's not exclusive to, to baseball, obviously, but I think it gets obscured very, very well. 
Yeah, I kind of distracted from Bobby's question. Do you guys usually seek out documentaries? I I don't as much personally. Um, the ones that I do seek out, I think I I try to find ones that are more, I guess, left of center. Not necessarily ones that like that like take a deep dive into a, a like central cultural phenomenon. Like even some of the sports ones that I've enjoyed, um, like Murder Ball. Um, for example, uh, you know, about like the quadriplegic rugby team, like just that take a dive into a sport, like I didn't even know existed, you know, like, I think those are the most fascinating ones to me that just open up my, my eyes to like this corner of the world that just like was unknown to me until like yesterday. I think I, like, I want to watch more docs, but I just don't make it around to it because like. I'm the type of person, like I'm such a, pulling the curtain back a little bit, I'm such a completionist that if I'm watching a doc, like I have to pay such close attention because if I miss like a five minute stretch and it ever references that five minute stretch again, it'll just drive me crazy. And like the thing about documentary filmmaking is that it gets made, it's probably like six hours long and then it gets pared down and down and down and down and down until it makes the most sense and it flows the best and only the essential information is there. So everything there if you're watching a good documentary is usually really important or like really emotionally resonant. And I find that every time I come out of a documentary, I'm like, I enjoyed that. Like I I usually, I mean, there's obviously really boring documentaries and I try to avoid those, but you know, like I'm thinking of, I saw, I think it was last year. Where's my Roy Cohn, which was like this documentary about Roy Cohn, who was like Trump's lawyer and like this big figure in conservative politics. And, but this really, and he defended Joseph McCarthy and, in uh, the McCarthy trials and that sort of thing. And I like, I like to be taken into a world that like, I usually don't think about because people on my timeline are not tweeting about it, you know? But um, I I think last thing before we get into our pitches and before into our honorable mentions is um, it's been kind of like a little bit of a boom time for episodic documentaries and, and TV versus movies in general. But I'm wondering if you guys have thoughts about the, the dichotomy between an episodic doc versus a feature length, just one sitting doc. Have you guys watched any of drive to survive on Netflix? The formula one. I have watched, I have watched a little of that actually, actually shouts to my mom who loves that show. (laughs) You'll boot up anything. Like you'll boot up anything for one or two episodes. And I'm just, like I just said, I'm not that type of consumer. Like if I start something, I almost always want to finish it. Yeah. I really enjoy that one because it's it's kind of like a hybrid between a doc and just like a, a show, like an action show. And I like it because it's in 45-minute hits, which I think works better. I, there's more tra- I think there's more still more traditional docs out there, but I do like kind of the episodic, oh, I can learn about this subject and it's going to be um, – and it's going to be like a quick hitter. Like I don't have to – I don't have to carve out two hours. I can carve out 45 minutes and see that the format of drive to survive, I think is like each week is like, they talk about one race week or one. I'm, I'm very formula one illiterate, but the show is awesome. Um, and it, so that that's very cool to me. Uh, yeah. I do like the episode. I would love to see more episodic document. I mean, the biggest thing in pop culture besides the last dance has been tiger King which was an episodic documentary. 
um, of a very, very different breed. But I, I think it makes him a little easier to consume, honestly. Like, it sounds crazy that, like, seven hours of content is easier to consume than the two, but I feel like it is harder to carve out the two hours you know, unless you're you're quarantined inside with nothing else to do. And not even just limited to documentaries. I mean, even you see this with TV shows, but like there's this idea and it feels like because we're in the age of streaming, like you can stretch that idea, which might work better for a movie, just like out into 10 episodes. And I think like even potentially Tiger King suffers from from that at times. And why why a show like why a show like Drive to Survive works so well is because like it takes place over the course of a season and you're kind of like honing in on um on different drivers from episode to episode. And so you're not locked in start to finish necessarily. Like you can kind of come in and come out, but it feels like you're getting like I think a different perspective episode to episode as opposed to feeling like they're just like dragging on like the punchline you know which i feel like is is something that happens it's a it's a pit that a lot of um i think episodic documentaries falls into where i'm just that's gonna, how like, mcmillian right, like, felt when, yeah yeah exactly it's like all right when's when's it gonna like hit like when is it gonna really um I, yeah i don't know come around and i don't know what are your thoughts bobby i think like the smartest filmmakers that make episodic docs like introduce a new character and make it almost like a bottle episode, so to speak for each episode of the doc. Like, I think that is what the last dance is going to try to do. Like there was very clearly the first episode was the general setup. The second episode was the Pippin episode. The third episode is going to be the Rodman episode. And once they've established these characters, it's going to be like, all right, now we're going to show you the good stuff behind the scenes of Michael Jordan in his final season. I like it when it's done well like that. Like I love to watch things in 45 minute installments, but I find like I lose momentum really quickly because I feel like the docs are always kind of like turning the speed on the treadmill up and trying to chase what they just re- revealed in the final. You guys alluded to this just now, but chase what they revealed in the at the final five minutes of the last episode. Like everyone was going wild for Tiger King, and I get it. You know, like we're all in quarantine, we're looking for something that everyone can talk about together, and is just like completely not going to make you think about the coronavirus or whatever. But I just. <laughs> A lot of it didn't land for me the same that that it was landing for people on my timeline. And I feel like the experience of just sitting down for between 70 and 110 minutes, because once you start getting over two hours, like it better be a really good subject. But the experience of sitting down for anywhere around an hour and a half to me is like the ideal experience for learning something new. Like I want to learn this new thing or learn something about a thing that I thought I knew a lot about. And then from that point, just either seek other documentaries about it and go deeper or just be happy with what I just learned. So I, I do prefer the feature-length documentary, actually, even though our culture seems to be going a lot more towards episodic. I think that's why, like, 30 for 30 works so well, too, right? I mean, that is, yeah. that is well, the Well, it's like an episodic feature, of it. feature yes, <laughs> series, yeah. but yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And it's, it's great because you can consume it in bite-sized pieces and they touch on, like, every single corner of the sports world. And so there's no two or three hour commitment or seven hour commitment. You know, you can just see like tiger in the uh, episode title and you're like, all right, yeah, I'll watch about a crazy tiger dude for an hour and then just move on with my life. (laughs) They also have those 30 for 30 shorts that I think like hit really well. A lot of the times there's like 20 minute ones that I really enjoy. Um, There was also, uh, I, 
I hate myself for not remembering her name. Who the Yahoo baseball writer? I think it's is it Allison Footer? She does stuff for yeah. I I can't remember, but she did a documentary that I think I saw last year. It was like twenty five minutes about a high school cricket team in New York, New York City, and it was like something that it was. It took twenty five minutes out of my day. I watched it while I was eating lunch while I was working, and it was really enjoyable. And I was like, I felt like I got a lot out of that. I learned something about both a sport and kind of a different culture. And it was less than 30 minutes. Like it was incredible. I think that there's a lot of value in like an even quicker hitting documentary as well. That's, I mean, that's kind of the idea behind like, like narrative podcasts, you know, like, or, or nonfiction podcasts, but that are like told in documentary style. And, and I don't know, to varying degrees, like, um, without getting too navel gazy while we're sitting here talking on a podcast. Like I think I think documentary podcasts are not quite as successful thus far, but that could change. Um, okay, so what we're gonna do is each of us is gonna pitch a dream baseball documentary that we would love to watch and would be really meaningful to us or would be really fun to us, or is there something that you're curious about that you feel like you don't know enough about? Um, before we do that, uh, why don't we throw a couple um a couple honorable mentions out there that we just didn't think quite made it or that wasn't as good as our actual pitch. Kyle, why don't you start us off since you're the guest? Okay. I've, I've got a couple, uh, I've got a couple honorable mentions. The, uh, first one, I, I mentioned the Maradona documentary earlier. Um, Asif Kapadia, he seems to be the go-to with the documentary about a single person. His style is really just really cool. Um, same with the Senna and the Amy Winehouse documentary. Um, him doing one on bonds or a rod, just pick one. They're two of the most, I guess, polarizing figures in baseball. Like a rod is especially a rod having this complete like resurgence, like the a, a rod or whatever we want to call it. Like the fact that he was Rodriguez. Yeah, he was, I mean, he was persona non grata in baseball, like suspended for an entire year, less than six years ago. And now he's dating J-Lo, commentating on Sunday Night Baseball and about to buy the Mets. Like he is, he's America's sweetheart. But <laughs> his his whole life and then Bonds, Bonds as well, in a, in a kind of a different way because he was such a gruff, antagonistic kind of person while he was playing. Um, and the these documentaries like the Maradona one, was fueled so much by footage. It was just, it's just constant footage. There was never a cutaway to, to just a, an interview sitting down. And with bonds, there's so much footage. Um, my next honorable mention, Bobby, this one is for you. I want a Matt Harvey. I want a Matt Harvey doc, like Mm. 10 years, like 10 years after he's done playing. Yeah. Because the peak, like the starting that all-star game in New York being called the dark Knight. He's got like the per- the personality and then it just all crashes down. Yeah, I wonder how that plays given that we all lived it in real time. You know, like I wonder how long you would have to wait before people start to forget some of the stuff that happened, the the nosebleed and all the back pages and the one oak trips and photos in the New York Post and everything. And you, you I got to go 10 years after he's playing, after he's done done at least. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's a short doc. That's a short doc. We got to keep that one tight. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just people getting their takes off about that. <laughs> well, I mean, I think what is also successful about like documentaries that focus on an individual is like that kind of unfettered access, right? Um, and I don't know. I don't know. Taking taking like the PR angle out of it, like you need someone with a camera trained on Matt Harvey like all the time, and him being okay with like those moments being published. You know, like him waking up hungover as hell and answering the door in his pajamas as the Mets are like, are you dead? Like, are you, are you, what is going on right now? Like how much Coke did you do last night? You know, like the, a sort of, a sort of willingness on the part of the participant to just be like, yeah, like air out my dirty laundry. Let's do this. You have to have Harvey has to be on board and he has to be willing to, to let loose on everything. And he's always been a unique, confident guy like turn he turned down a lot of money out of high school to go to UNC so it's like what in retrospect you know 10 15 years later what is a guy like that going to say when things didn't exactly work out when he was literally on top of the world and then it just it literally no pun intended it nosedived and i i would love to see kind of a retrospective on that when you said that it was for me i thought you were going to go something about the 1986 mets and I was going to be like, I feel like they might have a little bit of an overexposure. I mean, to on that right one, now. I think, didn't they do a 30 for 30 just on Dwight or uh, Doc, Doc and Daryl? Doc and yeah. Daryl. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would love to see a, a bigger, basically like you, you turn Jeff Perlman's book into like a blueprint documentary. That's never happening. None of those dudes are signing off on that. No way. <laughs> Um, but I do, my next honorable mention is, is another, a book I literally just finished, um, Ryan McGee's Road to Omaha. It's about the 2008 College World Series. I, I've got a personal, I've got a special place in my heart. I was, I, it was the only, first and only College World Series I've been to, uh, but it's with Fresno State winning. It's this incredible underdog story, the biggest, one of the biggest underdogs in NCAA history, but some of the big leaguers in that college world series include Buster Posey, Yonder, Yonder Alonzo, Gordon Beckham, Matt Harvey, Justin Wilson, Jason Castro, Drew Storen, Kyle Seeger, Dustin Ackley, Adam Warren, and Josh Fields. And that was just all the people I could get from memory. And that's in one, you know, place. And it could be like crazy five that parts. Dustin Ackley is the best part, the best person that you just named right there. <laughs> the bet he the, the bet he was the highest draft pick at that college world series. Because he was the best is, college player out of all those people. <laughs> which is incredible. Um and, and you could do like it could be a hybrid about that college world series, but also about Omaha and college world series history. That's something I'm really partial to. And then my last honorable mention is a 20 minute short documentary of the Edwin Jackson no hitter. <laughs> this is like your pet project the edwin jackson no hitter. I, we talked do, about it on the big screen sports episode i'm gonna do something on the edwin jackson no hitter at some point like what what did it was it 149 pitches eight walks like that's legendary alex that's how about ridiculous. you honorable mentions i only have one honorable mention so kyle did plenty for all of us but uh, i could have had 400 so <laughs> real quick uh, before i say mine kyle have you do you know anything about the the Barry Bonds like reality show that aired on ESPN in like the in like the early two thousands. Oh, that's that's off my radar. I I have never seen it either, and I I really would like to dig up the footage and maybe we can all get a watch party going. But I it's I, it was basically it was released in two thousand six, and it's like it's Bonds on Bonds, and it's him basically just talking to the camera 
about how unfairly he was treated and about how the steroid accusations really brought him down and he was an unfair target of the media. And it was eventually canceled because people were like, you're just handing the microphone to the most powerful, powerful, like person in baseball right now. What's the, what is this giving to the public narrative? Um, but I, I think it would make for a for a great group watch, and that we can. They need to put that on back. ESPN Plus. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, if you're gonna do a Bonds documentary, it's got to be when he either has nothing more to. He's got to have nothing more to lose. Like if he gets dropped off the Hall of Fame ballot, and he's not getting any more jobs in baseball, uh, it, it's got to be something where he's like, "Yeah, I can just come clean," because like, what you know, I my I'm not gonna be less in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, it's kind of, kind of like the, the Jose Canseco route, right? Where you're just like, screw it. Like I'm going scorched earth. I'm going to, I'm going to open, seven the, open the book on all of these guys. <laughs> going on every TV show. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's what we need. <laughs> I'm accusing, I'm accusing multiple people of sleeping with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> How has Jose Canseco not done this podcast yet, Alex? Oh my God. That's a, that's a, I don't know. He, he's got to be day. a Mount Rushmore guest for you guys. <laughs> I don't even know how that would go. Dodge a lot um, of landmines in that conversation, that's for sure. My uh, my honorable mentions, just a couple quick ones. I think similar to the Drive to Survive series, I think a um, an episodic uh, series documentary series that just follows like a couple like minor league players, ideally like ones near the end of their careers, would be really fascinating um because once again i think it's like just a story that gets very obscured um in the in the telling of just like how baseball exists um i would love to like follow around a veteran minor leaguer who has never made it to the show and like knows that he's never going to um i remember like a few years ago there was a guy who like broke the the like career minor league home run record, you know, like he had like four hundred, like three or four hundred home runs or something like that. Hessman, yes, yeah, exactly. That was almost one of my honorable mentions. The a documentary literal, on Hessman, the literal Bull Durham, but yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> but like seriously, like I would, like I want to follow him around, and like what comes next, you know, like what happens when you burn out of minor league baseball and fade into obscurity? Like, tell me that story. Um. My only other honorable mention is a documentary of the Cleveland Indians teams of the 90s, in part because we have now rewatched a couple of those games over the last few weeks and learning about the stories that were hidden under them, whether it's an Albert Bell bat heist story uh, or otherwise, or just the like Titanic lineup that was of just Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer. I, I'd love to just ha- be a fly on the wall in those locker rooms. My previous dream documentary, which would have been the pitch if it didn't already exist, is basically just screwball. Like, find one dude that gave steroids to a lot of players or was involved in finding steroids for players or whatever and just put it in front of the camera and put him in front of the camera and see what he has to say. Because that whole era between like 1994 and like 2007 was just like the wild, wild west of baseball. It's like, in many ways, the weirdest time to try to follow anything for steroid and non-steroid reasons and you go back and watch any of those games and it's just like what what is this what is the broadcast what is the culture around baseball it's bizarre so that would be one and my second one would be a documentary on effa manley who was the the owner and the business manager of the newark eagles who were a, a negro league baseball team 
And a lot of the players that eventually went on to be part of the integration of baseball came from Effa Manley's organization. And she was known, she's the first uh, black female Hall of Fame person to be inducted into Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, and the first female Hall of Famer in general. And, you know, if you go back and read books like we did um, an episode with Shakia Taylor a little while back on the book After Jackie. And if you go back and read that or you read stories about Effa Manley, she was like very um, forward thinking in terms of how the the monetary system of baseball was going to work. And she was she saw into the future about how MLB was going to come in and exploit all these Negro League teams and put them out of business. And that's eventually what went on to happen. So I, I feel like there was supposed to be a documentary about F. Manley directed by League of Their Own director Penny Marshall. But I don't I don't know what's going on with it. This this story from Deadline is from 2014. And I don't think that this story or that this documentary exists yet unless I'm unless I'm wrong. Have you guys seen this documentary? I have not. not. This is one of those documentaries that like I would feel very good after watching it. I'd be like, wow, I learned a lot and I've, it feels wholesome. It's pretty much like the the opposite of Screwball to where you're like, oh, that was a lot of ridiculous fun. I feel like I just like did cocaine. But <laughs> like versus the one you're discussing would be like, oh, wow, I feel cultured and I feel like I, I really learned something important about the history of this game. And I, I appreciate that a lot. I think I appreciate that more in a documentary as fun as stuff like screwball is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I totally agree. And just a lot, a lot to know from that era of baseball and in many ways that set up the baseball that we know now and like it, nothing was ever the same since then. And there's just a lot to unearth still from back then. I mean, there's a ton of books that you can read about it, but people don't read books anymore. <laughs> so I guess we need to make a documentary about it. Okay. Let's do our dream baseball documentary pitches. Kyle, like I mentioned earlier, you're the guest. So start us off. We're going to run down the pitch itself and then um, we'll run through a few categories for them. But what do you have for us? Real quick, before I go into my pitch, the rugby documentary or the cricket documentary I was talking about was uh, Yahoo Baseball's Hannah Kaiser. I completely got the name wrong. Allison Footer writes for MLB. Hannah Kaiser writes for Yahoo Baseball, and she did that documentary about the cricket team. I w- that would have kept me up at night if I hadn't shouted that out. Um, Two-time guest of Tipping Pitches, of Hannah Kaiser. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. She has a fantastic like 25-minute documentary. I highly recommend you guys check it out. Um, okay, my pitch is, uh, I, I even titled it, it's called A Tale of Two Cities, which I'm sure won't run into any copyright infringement <laughs> whatsoever. Um, it's about, and this is a Homer pick. It's about the 2001 MLB contraction plan. Uh, and for the last like 15 years, the conversation about team ownership and, and team rights has been more focused on expansion, like Nashville or moving the Rays to Montreal. It's kind of wild to think about MLB almost eliminating two teams and in, in 2001, they actually voted to do that. One of those teams being my beloved Minnesota Twins. Uh, and this is, so I pulled this directly from the Wikipedia page of MLB's contraction plan. November 6, 2001, the owners of the 30 teams in Major League Baseball voted 28-2 to two to eliminate two teams for the 2002 season. It's two teams expected to be eliminated. The Minnesota Twins and the Montreal Expos cast the dissenting votes. 
Uh, the contraction plan fell through due to a court injunction compelling the Twins to honor their lease with the Metrodome, as well as challenges by the Players Labor Union, the Major League Baseball Players Association. The Expos were later purchased by Major League Baseball. The Twins would eventually secure funding for a new stadium that opened in, in uh, 2010, while the Expos relocated to D.C. or rebranded the Washington Nationals. So it's like, there's there was this article that Jim Cable wrote in ESPN the magazine in 2000. It was about the 2002 Twins. Yeah, it was called the team that saved baseball. It was on the cover. I have the cover somewhere. I don't know what happened to it. Somewhere like at my parents' house. But it's that 20, it's that 2002 Twins team that won the AL Central. Basically like save they saved baseball in Minnesota, but it's a story of of two opposites in that the neither of these teams got contracted, but Montreal lost their team, which in it, it's something that's still, um, it's still very relevant in, in the culture of baseball. There's this lost generation of Expos fans who grew up and we're not going to name the most famous baseball writer Expos fan, but there, there was a baseball writer who did a lot of pro Expos work. Um, and, and something like that kind of sticks out. And I would love a documentary because I think it's got it's got part kind of like something that Alex was talking about earlier. It's got part like labor discussion and in the actual business of baseball. You can also coincide that with what's going on in the field. Those those the 2002 twins, because the twins had been bad for a long time, whereas the Expos in the 90s were actually were actually pretty good. And their one chance to win a World Series that if you look in retrospect could have could have perhaps prolonged baseball in Montreal in some form or fashion was wiped out by the strike. So there's labor implications. There's the business of baseball. There's also this great young upstart twins team. If I do say so myself, Tory Hunter, Brad Radke, Jock Jones, God, that team, just that team folks. Um, so I, I would just love to see something on that. Cause it's really, the polar opposite of these things happen. Like these teams where their backs were against the wall and one city's team got saved. And now they're playing in a, you know, a nice new stadium and the other is, is playing in Washington. So I, I would love to see that, that that's, that's pretty much my pitch. All right. Where do I sign up? <laughs> <laughs> no, I really, I really like that because for a couple of reasons, number one, it's not so distant in the past that there are going to be people who be like, who will be like, I remember that, and maybe I didn't consider it enough at the time. And two, with the way that sports leagues are going now, it's like everybody is trying to grow, grow, grow because sports and live sport, live sports are like one of the last things that like are big money makers for cable. And so, like the idea that MLB would ever need to just eliminate two teams and any that any sports league of the major four sports leagues would be below 30 teams is it's strange it, it feels so antiquated and the idea but that being in this century is nuts it's like right in that sweet spot of like just long enough ago to be a, a really good documentary but just recent enough that like you can directly tie it to right now and um there's obviously a lot of you have a lot of characters involved in these two teams you know that are still relevant in the baseball world like just think about to all of those expos players from the 90s like basically every good player from the 90s was an expo at some point <laughs> so yeah, you get um if like if you reach back like you can talk to it, this gives you an opportunity for a lot of great 
player and, and baseball figure interviews. Cause you can reach back to that 94 cause you'd want to talk to the 94 Expos team. That was, I mean, they were, they were beelining for a world series before the season got cut short. That team had Larry Walker, Pedro, a 21 year old cliff Floyd, like that'd be a great team to talk to. You also, my dream, if you do this documentary, you get the, uh, a bunch of the 2002 twins in a room and, and there's personalities there like Tori Hunter, Przinsky, uh, Doug Mankiewicz, Przinsky, Przinsky. you <laughs> love him when he's on your team. You, you don't love him when he's not, uh, Johan was on that team. And then uh, obviously you talk to my, my adult father, Joe Maurer, who can look at it as both a, a fan and a player growing up. And, you know, he grew up a diehard twins fan and then he was in the org. He wasn't on that team, but I mean, imagine Joe Maurer gets drafted first overall in 2001. And, you know, five months later, MLB votes to contract the twins, contract his hometown team who he just signed a contract with. Um, that, that That's a conversation that I'd love to see happen. Um, you also get uh, twins GM at the time. Terry Ryan would be a good, you know, talk to um, that on that Expos team, the 2002 Expos, Vlad, Michael Barrett, Manny Acta was the bench coach. Frank Robinson was the manager. He's unfortunately passed away, but um, there's, there's just a lot of potential for good, baseball stories mixed with good labor stories. I also, I listed out some possible narrators. I I think every, every, most good docs have a, have a good narrator. Um, At the top of my list, Kevin Costner, I feel weird having any baseball project that doesn't have him included. (laughs) Uh, He is, he is really your corner. He's the God of my podcast. So um, after watching the last dance, Scotty Pippen, what a voice <laughs> on my guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, Just James Earl, yeah. James Earl Jones. Uh, Miles Teller. You've already I spent think, like $48 million on this documentary. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, the, this documentary isn't going to, it's not going to turn a profit. <laughs> no one's buying this. <laughs> um, Miles Teller, I think. And then I, I was looking at who are notable Twins fans. I came up with three. There's Nick Swartzen. Jesse, the body Ventura and, <laughs> and Josh Hartnett, who might need the work. So, so those are my, uh, those are my narrator nominees. And then my director nominee would be Jonathan Hawk. He's done a ton of documentaries, done a bunch of 30 for 30. He said best. It never was survive in advance. He also did fastball. Costner was the narrator in fastball. So Hawk has the connection there. I think that's how we'd make that happen. Um, I would like, I, as much as I would like, you know, a 10 to 15 episode on this, I, I think I would be the like the only person who's craving 10 to 15 episodes about the 2002 Minnesota Twins. Probably probably works better is like, a you know, an hour and a half, two hour doc. Um, OK, so you, you mentioned a lot of the dream interviews, which is going to be uh, one of the questions that I wanted to ask. So let's talk about style for this documentary. Um, there's uh, plenty of different styles, episodic feature like we talked about that dichotomy um you just mentioned you would like like it to be as much content as possible so i think episodic for you but are you are you imagining it to be like a lot of archival footage from that time are you mostly imagining talking to a lot of people and having it be uh interview based to talk about like maybe what would have happened with the fallout from that i think when i watch documentaries i I guess before we did this, I was kind of thinking about what what really is my preferential style of documentaries. 
And I think I like seeing archival footage or action more. Like even you think about Screwball, there's almost no archival footage in Screwball. It's all basically acted out by kids dressed as A-Rod, <laughs> which is incredible. But even like the the Maradona documentary is purely archival footage. And I think it's incredible. Um, and we're also getting into this age now with our documentaries, like the like The Last Dance, the last dance has a few, you know, we'll, we'll cut to those interviews of MJ and Scotty with the golden voice and Phil Jackson, but there's so much, we're going to be at an age now where our documentaries, if they're, you know, anything from the nineties on, there's just going to be such an incredible amount of footage to use. I think it'd be almost a crime not to, um, and, and you can have goings on, it doesn't have to just be game footage. You could have, you know, footage from the, the winter meetings that year, or things like that, that, um, that, that you can have voiceovers. And I think there in in a documentary like this, there would need to be certain cutaways. Like if you get MLB PA president at the time, Donald fair, if you get him to sit down for an interview, you cut to that interview a few times. Cause it'd be weird to have him talking over you know, a Johan Santana change up. It just, it, it kind of wouldn't work. But, um, I think with, with documentaries now that there is going to be so much footage available, I, I would prefer it be used like in, in that regard where it's almost, I mean, I don't, I don't know how the ratio, like an, an 80, an 80, 20 almost. Cause I, I think that's been one of the best parts about the last dance is all the, the cool footage that we're seeing. I think that's part of, a documentary, part of the cool part about a documentary is it, it just places us back in that time period and that history. And we're seeing it's it's easier to when you're seeing what's going on as opposed to just hearing someone talk about it. It's easier to get that visual. Um, so I, I think I'm all for, you know, the the archived footage. Where does this doc work best? Is it streamer? Is it on cable? Whichever one's willing to shell out seventy-two million dollars to produce it, <laughs> be, I know the style, the prices went up. It'd be uh, it'd be like the the Fox Sports North affiliate, <laughs> just the, the Minnesota, <laughs> maybe a Montreal billionaire buys it and and displays it. Like I think this style would work best in like a um, honestly like a, a thirty for thirty format, like something a part of a series. Um, because you, yeah. you know, you have that and then you have nine other cheap documentaries to offset the cost. But, uh, yeah, so, something like that. Like, uh, I think the thing about documentaries that stream on HBO or Netflix, I feel like are more, I, I don't want to say niche, but they're just more particular, you know, like are they're, they're almost bigger. Like you think of Diego Maradona, one of the biggest, you know, soccer players to to ever live screwball about one of the biggest scandals in baseball history involving arguably one of the most famous baseball players alive right now a rod is probably in the top five of the consciousness just in terms of what he means not only to baseball but to pop culture um if hbo said hey we've got a, a new documentary coming about the you know the twins and the expos possibly getting contracted that no, no one's going to watch Nobody that. Nobody would watch it. Yeah. It has to, yeah, it has to be it has to be a sports market. It has to be ESPN, um, you know, MLB Network. You guys can also make it just, you know, shell out that money. 
Um, you guys, you MLB can. Network, who is listening to this podcast? Yeah, you, you, guys, you guys listening, MLB Network. Yeah, now, I think it would have to be a um, a sports centric service be because anything like like Netflix. I mean, I'm watching it 45 times the first month it comes out, but no one else is. So I'm not really a good businessman when it comes to documentaries. I'm starting to realize <laughs> that as we talk this out, I'm well, probably I'm probably not a producer. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the pitch deck, I don't think. Um, okay, final. so the final thing that we want to run through with each pitch is originally when we conceived the idea of you coming on the show, we were, we were talking about the idea of, you know, because we went on big screen sports, we talked about our favorite fictionalized baseball games, the, the fictionalized baseball games we would want to attend. And um, originally we were going to have you on and we were going to talk about let's pick a baseball game or a baseball season or a baseball team and let's cast and talk about what a scripted version of that baseball story would look like but i think that was maybe we bit off a little bit more than we could chew with that idea and we decided to do this this doc idea because we wouldn't have to explain to people like how it would work it's just a doc about this thing that we're talking about um but we want to keep the scripted thing alive somehow because i think scripted baseball movies are important to all three of us so last last category here is the scripted litmus test. So would this work better or worse or not at all or equally as well as a, a scripted feature film? I think I, I put some thought in this. I think it would, but it would only, you couldn't make it unless you had, had the documentary first and the documentary of success. This is a standalone idea. I don't think you can make just like spur of the moment Hey, let's do this. It would have to be kind of like Dogtown and the Z Boys, then turned into Lords of Dogtown. Like, oh, successful documentary. People like this, um, and and there's a story here that we can expand on. Uh, it, it would have to be like that. I think if if it's one or the other, I think it probably works better as a a documentary itself. There's not as much, you know. I, you'd have to find like a, a money ball style angle, how they focused a lot on Billy Bean himself, how they, how money ball kind of, okay, we're going to, it's about, you know, what they're doing, you know, the, the Billy Bean and, and um, Jonah Hill, what they're doing, but it's also <laughs> about, but it's also about <laughs> Billy Bean and his own, it, it's kind of his, his story and his, yeah, his you know, relationship with his daughter and, and stuff like that. Yeah. You'd have to, you'd have to find some angle about that like that. So I, I think just one or the other, it probably works better as a doc. Yeah. Who's your, who's your Brad Pitt of this film? Oh man. <sighs> well, it's like, who's the Brad Pitt and who do they play? Yeah. Um, so Brad Pitt, like noted character actor trapped in a leading man's body. Do you think he'd, do <laughs> like you think he'd want to put on? Yeah. Shout out, Sean. Do you think he'd want to uh, put on like put on a little bit of weight and dye his hair white and play Ron Gardenhire? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> he might. I think you could twist his arm. I think he could do it. You just made the, the budget is going through the roof again. Oh, bro. yeah. No, the, oh, the 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 scripted movie would cost. It, it might be close to a billion. We'd, we'd go all out. I have a question that maybe blows this whole the, the whole idea of scripted baseball movies being important to us up. The question is, why isn't Moneyball just a documentary? I mean, I love Moneyball. It's great. But how did that not just get made into a documentary based on the book? You know, if 
the book Moneyball comes out in 2010, it might be that here and now we're getting a Moneyball documentary instead of a Moneyball feature film, honestly. I I think that's the case. I Alex. mean, I also, like, I think that if it was a documentary, it wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't be compelling for the same reasons. Like, Moneyball, the, the movie, took a lot of storytelling liberties and there were some notable like things that it obscured from the the narrative because that's just kind of what made for a good uh you know fictional movie like you just exclude the fact that the a's had a stacked pitching rotation right and it was all it <laughs> yeah, was all names, on base percentage <laughs> hudson zito and Mulder are never mentioned yeah neither yeah. jermaine die or miguel tejada <laughs> yeah so i mean i think it definitely like it goes from being like a major motion picture and one of arguably one of the best films of the last decade to like this very niche idea that I think mostly just baseball fans kind of latch on to. It turns into guys like us DMing on Twitter like, hey, did you watch the Moneyball documentary? <laughs> really good. <laughs> that doc, Moneyball as a doc, okay, prepare for me for some heresy, but I think it's better as a doc. And maybe this is because I'm a snob about like baseball and analytics and everything, but like I, I read Moneyball like the week before I watched the Moneyball the movie for the first time, and I was like, I I just feel like they're not talking about baseball in the movie, and maybe that's fine, but it just kind of bothered me a little bit. And Moneyball as a doc, I feel like would do a really good job of like really illustrating how much Moneyball affected not just the baseball world but how every front office executive in every sport and even outside of sports the executives of major companies just like changed the way that they do things like there hasn't really been anything else in a long time that's changed the way that every executive in America operates the way that Moneyball has and I feel like a doc has a bigger chance to to capture that it's obviously a lot for a doc to do but I don't know. I'd, I'm curious to live what a world where Moneyball is a documentary would look and feel like. I think it says a lot about Moneyball the Doc that one of the biggest interviews or most interesting interviews in the Moneyball the Doc would probably be someone like Daryl Morey. Like, how did Moneyball, you know, impact basketball? Like what you were saying. Um, yeah. It, with Moneyball the movie, you have to leave a lot of your your pre-knowledge and your baseball at the door. You have to leave it all yeah. at the door. Yeah. All of it. You really and do. you just have to appreciate that that movie is incredibly well-acted, well-made, has a fantastic score. You you have to put away a lot of biases, and I get that a lot of people, a lot of baseball people can't do that. Yeah. Like, I, I, think, I think it's really understandable. I can still like Moneyball, which is kind of like sacrilege for a podcast that I host that focuses on like appreciating authenticity in sports movies, but Moneyball is just beautiful. <laughs> I can't, I can't turn it away. Yeah, I th yeah. Why, why Moneyball the movie succeeds is because if you make it a documentary, like the scope becomes so huge, like you're opening up a can of worms at every turn, and it's a lot easier to fictionalize it and sand down the edges and pretend that like what they Chris Pratt what they knows were, how to throw a baseball. Chris Pratt knows how to throw a baseball. What they were doing was undoing the entire label, the entire labor landscape of the sport. If you had stayed more true to the book, though, you could have casted Chris Pratt as college-age Nick Swisher, as recent drafty <laughs> Nick so Swisher, true. and that works. Yes. So true. Wow, missed opportunity. Okay, uh, anything else that you want to say about this doc, Kyle? Anything else that we didn't talk about that you're really excited about? 
Uh, what do we leave off? Um, I'm excited about all the money it's going to cost, uh, especially <laughs> in this format in, in this day and age where it's really easy to get things made. And uh, no, I, I, I think that's it. I'd be, I would love to talk to, I, I would just, I would love like a good narrative podcast on this. If someone wants to do it or like a deep dive on the situation. Cause it's something that even though it nearly impacted me a lot, I was only 11 when it happened. So I, I would love more info on this in the Wikipedia page. And if anyone can direct me in a really good, uh, in the direction of like a really good written piece about this, holler at me. Let's, let's make this happen. I want to read it. Okay, Alex, you're up. All right. My doc is probably not as fully fleshed out as it could be right now, but I think that that's probably because there are a lot of unknowns because it's a story that I don't know very well. Um, but I want to see a documentary about high school baseball in Japan. Oh, and ooh. talk about specificity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting to me because like high school baseball in Japan is arguably just as if, if, um, if not more revered than professional baseball uh, in the country, there, there are a special few tournaments that really just grab the like nation's attention. The, the kind of thing that is unlike anything that we have in, uh, uh, in the U S at least as far as like high school or below goes, like maybe the little league world series is the most comparable thing. Um, but it's interesting to me about uh, pitchers specifically and the way that they treat, um, treat the arm of pitchers and the idea, the way that the idea of pitch counts are treated and kind of like the way that so many of these players feel like they're playing with this sort of like honor and this grit that they have to like push through. And, and it's part of like a larger culture just in, in Japan about like honoring yourself and your family and your country. Um, but it's something that has led to a really interesting debate over the last decade or so about like, a 16-year-old kid who throws like, you know, 300 pitches in a weekend or something like that. And what is that the was me. and yeah. <laughs> and what is the responsibility of like 2010 the baby? <laughs> what is the responsibility of like the coaches and the parents who are sitting here and watching this and like knowing that the kid may be decimating his future and it's a worldview that is entirely flipped upside down. Um from what we know today, I would love to talk to a guy like Daisuke Matsuzaka, who came out of that circuit um, and had similar similar stories about him going around throwing three, four, five hundred pitches during a tournament. Um, and when and when he talked to reporters after he retired, and they were like, you know, do you think that like you basically shredding your arm as a kid like had any negative impact? Like, do you think you threw too much as a kid? And he was like, no, I don't think I threw enough in the major leagues. I thought I should have thrown more. Mm. And so it's just this, I think, this really fascinating concept of like this idea of baseball that seems like so like standard to us about how we want to protect the arms of kids and, and nurse them growing up. They, they become lionized as, as 16 and 17-year-olds in, in Japan. And so that's, that's where I'd like to hone in on. Yeah, I... Dream interviews for this. Obviously, you mentioned Daisuke Matsuzaka, but Shohei Otani, who's like one of the biggest stars in the world right now yeah. in the baseball world. And there were questions about his elbow coming over mm-hmm. from Japan. And turns out <laughs> they were right. Yeah. He needed Tommy John. Um, 
I I remember the stories about Dice K, like that lore of him in that tournament. It's I, I'm not gonna it starts with an S. I'm not gonna try to pronounce it, but it's that big national tournament they have that Alex was talking about. Like but it's the stories of like every single one of those big arms that comes over, Dice K and you Darvish and Tanaka, they all have it's like their um their legend starts at that tournament. It's a really interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I like what what you're saying, Alex, and like talking about not just the tournament, like the actual actions, but like what that means in the culture and yeah. the different the the what culture means, what arm care culture is in Japan versus because it, it's kind of it's just completely different here. Yeah, and also and also the way that it's like such a national sport too, the way that like the the fans rally around it in such a unified fashion. Yeah. I I also think like the reason that I love this pitch so much is is twofold. Um well, threefold, I guess. One, I don't know that much about this. Two, it's like it interacts with the other things and other themes that we care about in the baseball world. Like pitcher injuries are a huge thing because obviously teams are trying to figure out how they can make their pitchers healthier. It seems like every good young pitcher now has Tommy John and it throws off teams entire seasons. And, you know, a Jeff Passan wrote an entire book just called the arm about this whole thing. And three is Japanese pitchers have such a different style than American pitchers. And it's the kind of style that you can only have by throwing this many pitches and practicing this many pitch types. The style there is I have like five different kinds of pitches I'm the U Darvish type where I have five different pitches that I've mastered because I've just thrown so much that I've had time to practice all these pitches. And the style here is like, I'm going to throw it 99 by you. I need a good fastball. I need some kind of curveball or slider and I need a change up. It's those three pitches and I can be a Cy Young candidate from those three pitches and I become like an all-time great five years into my career by adding another pitch. But that's not really how Japanese pitchers approach the game. And the idea of different styles between different cultures is like a really 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 intriguing one to me yeah i i think it's the kind of thing not to like already jump on to to move on to like who would you interview for this but like no, i think it's i think it's it, bro. yeah <laughs> i think it's it's something that really maybe not only works but is really enhanced by like having that sort of insider access, I think, because it's the kind of thing that especially a lot of coaches um, and teams are very like insular and inward about. Uh, I think there's a hesitancy to kind of let people people in on that, in part because it's become like a global discussion, really. Um, and so the the approach would have to be not necessarily something of being like, this is bad and we want to expose why it's bad. But like, here's a sport that grew up at the same time, pretty much as baseball in America. I mean, baseball was introduced uh, in Japan in like the late 1800s. So, and really took off around World War II. And so how did these two sports that like grew at this, or this one sport that grew in two different places at the same time, like become just such a different entity of itself? It's really it's really interesting to where you could ha- also have in this doc like conflicting not conflicting but you could see such opposite sides of the arm care debate because now especially in the last I would say like 10 15 years about the 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 big thing with pitch counts 
like the, you know, especially like pitch counts have been implemented all the way from the little league world series to minor league baseball, um, to where, you know, there are organizations that won't let, you know, their, their prospects sniff a hundred pitches, you know, at a time until they're a certain age or something. So getting the, unlike bull Durham, which we mentioned you know, on, on our podcast with you, where <laughs> Nick Lelouch with the 18, the 18 strikeout, 18 walk. <laughs> debut. First, his first minor league appearance, he throws 327 pitches. Maybe oh, they, they were just following the Japanese model. Uh, yeah. I was about to say they would have loved him in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> just throw forever. But it's kind of like, you've got a chance to leave that documentary with like a, you know, Hey, are, you know, is there a different way to do this? Yeah. Because there's no, there's still no, there's still been no perfect answer of how do we stop these arm injuries? It's like the great, it's not like we're doing a good job here. Exactly. It's like the great never ending problem. And I mean, they're, you know, guys, guys now, guys who are getting drafted now have been through, that culture of, you know, you're we're protecting your arm from the second you start playing baseball and guys like that are still getting hurt. Yeah. So it'd be a really interesting look into, hey, here's the here's the extreme of what's going on in the world of, of pitch counts and arm care. Is, is there a better option out there? Is there some is there is there some, you know, is there something to be gained from this style? I think it, I think it's got legs. I think it might, might be cheaper than, uh, than mine. Too, so. <laughs> well, um, I didn't, I didn't tell you that I wanted Brad Pitt narrating this. That was, uh, oh, that was last tough. on my list. So it's going to bump the price tag a bit. Uh, okay. Style wise. What are you thinking? I, I think that this probably works best as a shorter, um, a shorter documentary, probably 30 for 30 style. I mean, it certainly doesn't work in like an episodic fashion, I don't think. Um, and I think a lot of the footage that you're going to get from this will mostly be in like the last few years, honestly, but of, but of a type of baseball, I think that's very foreign to us. Like I, I have never witnessed a high school Japanese baseball game in my life. And so like, I'd love to just kind of, witness that sort of thing. Um, I mean, you can definitely rely on like ar- archival footage of, um, of Japanese greats, like, you know, Hideo Nomo and like we said, Matsuzaka and, and Shohei Otani right now and use him as kind of a, a protagonist in America. Um, so, but once again, it's like, it's the kind of thing that I think really only works if you're able to get that access and talk to the people who are like right in the middle of all this and have that coach who pushes his kid to, to throw 200 pitches, be like, why? Like, what's, what are you getting out of this? Talk to the kid and be like, how does your arm feel, dude? Like, do you feel like you're a better pitcher now? Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the benefits you mentioned that the, the tournament that the one that's like such a big national deal, I've, I've seen the footage, like they've shown the footage of, of Dice K throwing in that tournament as a high school. There's a lot of great archival footage of, of the old, you know, also there's like, there's a ton of potential for that. But again, if you get the access. Yeah. 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 This one. So this one feels to me not to, not to push it ahead too fast, but this for the medium for this one, this one is the type of one that would work better on like an HBO or like a, like a Hulu or a Netflix or something, as opposed to showing on cable because it like it asks more of you to think internet like to think mm-hmm. how how other international cultures interact with something that in theory is very american and it's like it's it's um it's a heady idea and it's like a high concept in a way 
but also would end I think would end up being really relatable. So I don't know where where are you where are you selling it to, Alex? Yeah, I you know I mean you said HBO, so I'll I'll sell it to HBO. Why <laughs> they want to want to pay Cash me money to make this movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right, or a or a Hulu or something like that. Like I mean, I think we take an interest in a movie like this, but I also can see why like um, an average person may not be like, why do I care about like Japanese pitch counts? Although I do think that like there is that kind of cultural appeal of just be taking this dive into a into world a world that we're so uh so unfamiliar with. So yeah. No, why put, don't you care about Japanese pitch counts? Yeah. So guilt, guilt someone into watching it. <laughs> Alex, did you have any dream interviews for this one? You kind of rolled over that that subject. I word vomited every single one of mine out. So I want to hear what <laughs> yours are. <laughs> I mean, like I was saying, I think my I don't know. My my dream interviews are a guy like Daisuke Matsuzaka, like someone who has come directly out of this circuit or who is like right smack dab in the in the middle of it. I I'm trying to think of, of like of like bigger names who can speak to this sort of thing, but in order to like really get that perspective, I think you need someone who is like in the like throes of it. Yeah. You can't do this documentary without Dr. James Andrews though. Like well, you ha- you have true. to talk yeah. about like the the United States medical view of what goes on with pitch counts like yeah. this is the dude that performs all every you know tommy john or even if it's not james andrews like it has to be someone like that yeah i'd also be interested in hearing from like the the driveline culture on this mm. yeah yeah you're gonna, I mean, you're gonna call up trevor bauer what's up <laughs> not him <laughs> i'm just on trevor bauer and kyle Bodie on a zoom call i mean trevor bauer would be like He'd give you his takes. Yeah, the thing is, it, is, it would, is it would like it would probably yield some interesting answers, although it would be in the in the worst way possible. That, Can you bring your thing. Trevor Bauer voice back. <laughs> God no. <laughs> I, the, I was really torn on which direction to go with this documentary because I want to see one just as badly that just focuses on like travel ball culture in the US because that's like a fascinating beast that Oh boy is, do I have a pitch for you coming is, up then. Oh man, I can't wait. <laughs> okay, I won't skip you. I won't skip I you. I can't wait. <laughs> you can you can have Kyle Body for for your interview, Bobby. I'll give him to you. That's so magnanimous of you. Thanks. Uh, I knew I, I did this podcast with you for a reason. I, last point is I, I don't think this works as well as a scripted film unless once again you like Moneyball style really like sand down the edges of like how it affects the culture. I mean, sure, it's scripted if you just like the story of a kid who's like on his way who's from Japan. He's like on his way to the major leagues and like yeah. throws 500 pitches in the championship game and you, you know, obscure the fact that he was never able to pitch again or whatever. What was the name, Kyle? You'll probably remember this. The name of the the Netflix basketball movie about the kid that gets recruited. It's fictional. The kid that gets recruited and he takes money illegally and then he gets suspended or something like that. Do you remember this? It was a couple of years ago. Then it's a net it's a Netflix original? Yeah. Oh my god, I missed this. I'm Amateur. That's what it's called. That yeah, that one it's probably on the, the podcast list to cover. That one is not I have not gotten around to it yet. Well, it's not good. <laughs> Number one. Number so two. Push it, push it down the list is what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, push it down the list. <laughs> I would worry, Alex, that like if you tried to script this movie, it would just turn out like that. Where right. like you're you're very much trying to like uh like virtue signal about what is the right way to do it if it yeah. becomes scripted, as opposed to just like letting these people talk 
truthfully about how they feel about this issue. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Just give them kind of, not just hand them the platform, but honestly, like kind of hand them that platform to share their ideas. <laughs> Who does Brad Pitt play, though? <laughs> we got to know, if we're going to appropriate Japanese culture with a white, handsome actor, it's got to be Tom Cruise. Bro. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> <laughs> the last baseball trainer. <laughs> The last pitching coach. <laughs> <laughs> All oh, right. No. I, am, am I up now? Are we ready? I think you're up, Bobby. Okay. Uh, it would have been really funny if you if you pitched the exact same thing. I, I know. We, I know. We I, talked I, about this we yesterday. We joked about that. <laughs> but uh, here, the, the log line for mine is, at, at the risk of oversimplifying it, it's just like hoop dreams for baseball. Um, and I know that seems really obvious because hoop dreams is one of the most celebrated and important sports documentaries to everyone and to me personally i tried to avoid talking too much about it at the top of this show but it's a hugely important film to me and to the documentary film world and to the sports documentary film world because it tackles such big ideas and um it's like a sundance darling which is really important to documentary film culture uh came out in 1994 and i watched it last night in preparation for this and it's a fucking incredible movie um it's it's obviously some of it has not aged very well and some of the characters views on the world and the world of basketball have not aged very well but why does it work for baseball to me it's like capitalism and and race intersect with baseball in such interesting ways um and we try to talk about that as well as we can on this podcast whenever we can um the idea of youth baseball is something that we talk around a lot we try to talk about it accurately but there's just so many little leagues there's so many travel teams there are so many aau teams and i feel like that world has changed so much and the views of that world have not updated along with it like unless you have a kid that plays travel baseball or unless you've played travel baseball in the last 10 years you don't really have cause to think about that world all that much and i'm envisioning this type of documentary to be like following around three to five players either on different teams or the same team or whatever it might end up being. And it, it doesn't even have to be like inner city kid goes to prep school to have a baseball dream. Like it could just be like kid who can't afford the travel team gets brought onto the travel team because they realize that he throws really hard or something like that. It, it's interesting, Alex, how your idea and my idea could interact because like you want to follow Japanese high school baseball players and I want to follow American high school baseball players and see what that world demands of them. Bobby, I couldn't be more all in on the, like I would say, shut up and take my money. I don't have much of it, but you can have it to make this like this. This is a world that is so interesting and has morphed so much in like 10 year yeah. splits. Like it's, it was different in the 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 aughts than it was in the nineties, and it's crazy different now that it was in the in the aughts. Like when when I was in high school, it's it's completely morphed. Yeah, and and I also just feel like the politics of this world are so unique. Like there there's there's been a lot of talk about basketball recruiting and football recruiting and the bags that get dropped for these top recruits and the the shoe deal money and everything. And I feel like we know that world a little bit better, but the baseball world. The minor leagues create an interesting buffer there because the stars that may have been offered XYZ amount of money to go to 
a big school to go to Duke or whatever. Like they don't make it to the majors for like five more years after that. And so there's no reason to dig up this old story about how they got $100,000 to go play baseball at the University of Virginia because it's been five years since then. And I just feel like the minors create an interesting buffer where we don't talk about that that seedy underworld that might affect these players. And Alex and I try to talk as much as possible on this podcast about how um, inaccessible baseball feels, but we can talk to we're blue in the face. We just got to show it. Like we just have to show it. And I, I am imagining this documentary being like, not just about the unique pressures of playing baseball on a travel team, but like the economic pressures and the stunted growth that this creates because it is just such a crazy, crazy world that like I, I don't totally feel like I understood because I participated in it to some point, but it's not like I was like going to top 100 baseball America high school camps or anything like that. Like I was just playing regular old travel baseball and it's just an, it's an interesting world, man. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's a lot of money in it too, honestly, and not necessarily money that goes to teams or kids or anything like that, but that organizations like, uh, like Perfect Game USA, which is, you know, like basically the, the national like showcase organization that runs some of the biggest like showcases for, for young stars in the country. And, and just the way that like that infrastructure is set up to like profit off of a lot of like really young players and the like level of competition that it takes to get there um yeah. is yes, so yes, yes. Yeah, yeah i mean like follow the coach around you know for a week <laughs> or something like that like the well, way yeah and the other thing about this world too is that like many of the problems with baseball with major league baseball that we talk about all of these ingrained learned behaviors that are really problematic and um, hyper-masculine and racist and homophobic and all of these things that they get formed in these places. Like they are taught and passed down from coaches to players this early on at these kind of camps on these kind of teams where it's like someone who hits a home run in ninth grade AAU doesn't know not to get excited. They're taught not to get excited. And so I want to see them be taught that. And I want to hear the rationale for why they're taught that. And Alex, you mentioned all these top camps and everything. Um, There's so many politics involved in getting on these lists early and staying on these lists. Like you watch how kids are really good and they get swept up into these camps and everything and they stay on them because baseball, it's like everybody feels like they can develop a kid once it's acknowledged that they have talent. And I want to know more about the, the kids that get chosen for that and the kids that fall through the cracks. I'll go like on my Instagram explore tab or whatever is usually just mostly like baseball videos. And some like sometimes a perfect game post will will make its way onto my explore tab. And I'll see it's like our new our 2023 grad top 100 list is live. Like these kids are 14, 15 years old. It's it's changed so much in the last you know, in the last, you know, 10 years, like I graduated high school in 2009 and I, like I played travel baseball and we had, we, we had a couple guys who were like actual prospects. Wasn't me, but we had, you know, we had guys and like, I remember it was like probably before our senior year that those guys became a big deal and were getting noticed and, you know, whatever comes with that. And now it's kids who are 
13, 14, and you're so much happens from when you become a freshman in high school to when you graduate, but you're now these kids are committing to, you know, big D one, you know, these big programs at, at age 14 and 15. And it's, it's crazy to think how they're expected to make those choices. And also in a sport, like in a, in a basketball and football, you're, you know, when you commit, cause like that, that happens too with basketball and football, but a coach is saying, okay, we, we've got a full ride for you in, you know, in whenever you graduate in three years or whatever, you're, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be a linebacker. We we've got this allotted for you. Well, if you don't develop properly in baseball, college baseball, you're playing with such that, that limited field of scholarships. Well, a coach can't, you know, if you don't develop a coach, can't just say, Hey, you know, yeah, you're, you're not the quality of player. I thought you were going to be when you were 14, but I'm still going to give 18 year old you 80% when you're, you're really, you're, you're more of a walk on player. So it's, there's an interesting factor of what the, the pressure of those lists and those services and kids being targeted so young and how that actually affects your development and your enjoyment of the sport. It becomes a serious business much quicker now. I think for kids, it's much more ingrained of, okay, I'm, I'm just making these rankings and I'm getting to college ball. And it's, I think part of the documentary would be, I think focused on how much of these kids actually in enjoying baseball versus how much is this just a launching pad to your college career? Like how much is it? It's cause college baseball becomes is much more of a business or any next level is going to be much more of a, not, not just playing for fun anymore. And it's like, how, how much does that seep down into the, the younger levels of baseball? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that like that interplay with little league uh, that like travel ball has would be a really fascinating angle to take because little league is like this egalitarian, like landscape where it's like baseball should be accessible to everyone and it should be like fun like you should just be out there with your friends having a good time and travel baseball the the emergence of travel baseball has really done a lot to like harm that structure um i mean even just growing up i know kids who were like 13 or 14 would get halfway through their literally career or whatever and then be like yeah i'm out i'm just going to go play for the for the travel ball team because it's more competitive or whatever and so like you were talking about those ideas of like competitiveness and like what it means to be playing the game like whether this is something that you love to do or if it's something that you feel like you you have to do is this really interesting dichotomy that i think a lot of kids right now are facing i like the have to do but yeah. you, you mentioning the have to do because like my last little league season was when i was 12 and then it was like you have to go play travel baseball and i wasn't good i wasn't that good and i still was like you have to play travel baseball or there's that implication of you are going to get left behind. Yeah, and and the curve is a lot steeper for when you fail at baseball, right? Like you become 16, 17, 18 and if you can't hit off speed, you're just not you're not on the team anymore. Like if you, in basketball like you can't use your left hand when you're 18 but you're still dunking on people, you're still going D1. Like just you are. And in baseball it isn't that way. So I I also think, you know, we're dancing around on college thing, but an interesting element of this documentary would be the choice between going to college or going in the 12th round, you know, like that's such a, it's so different for each person. 
um, I'll I'll jump into my dream interviews, but one of those people would be someone like Marcus Stroman, who was a really incredible high school baseball player on Long Island, um, got drafted out of high school in the 18th round, decided to go to Duke for a few years to improve his draft stock, and then got drafted 22nd overall. Like, what does that look like if he goes and plays minor league baseball? Or what does that look like if he gets draft in, drafted in the fourth round and offered a $2 million signing bonus so that he won't go to college because that's something that happens a lot in college baseball uh, in the in the in the MLB draft is that MLB teams offer players bigger signing bonuses so that they if they fear that they might go to college and they might lose out on that pick. I'm just fascinated by all that stuff. Um, I, I'm fascinated by why a kid would choose to go to college versus why they would choose to take a signing bonus for however much money in the fifth round or sixth round or tenth round or whatever it might be. Um, it's so it's so different for each person, but also it's just like this this system that is completely ass backward and ruining the the sport that we love. <laughs> and for anyone interested in stuff like that, no free ads, but you can go listen to From Phenom to the Farm, presented by Baseball America, every other Tuesday, <laughs> talking to high school signees about their experience and that exact decision. <laughs> that was very natural. I like it. <laughs> I this would be a really interesting story to like tell right now like i almost don't think it's a story you can tell like right now because of everything that's going on right now and that's and when i say like everything i mean two things one coronavirus is going to massively massively shape the the landscape of like amateur baseball um from the potential delay of the draft um and players not basically not being able to play baseball for a year um and also the the contraction of the minor leagues and how that shapes the decision of a kid to continue playing baseball or to go to college um, to really put all your hopes on the line. Uh, I think it was I think it was last night that the news came out basically that minor league baseball had agreed to uh, basically drop forty of their teams. And on any other day, that's something we would like talk about uh, on this podcast and it's just you know reduced to a to a footnote in this sports documentary you'd like to see but like i think that like it's such a rapidly changing landscape that i i really don't even know that we're gonna know what that looks like in five years it's gonna look massively different it'd be a tough doc to do because you're right in that like literal united states legislation changes people's minds on these types of things um, and, and so, yeah, I don't know if this would be the time or if it would be like a thing where you'd have to wait five years and see what the landscape looks like then and see if it still looks like this or, or what it might be. But, um, a couple other guys I had for dream interviews, um, I think two guys that Alex and I, two of the two of tipping pitches favorites that Alex and I talk about a lot who think smartly about the game and also talk a lot about how baseball is inaccessible and where they came from and, um, how baseball interacts with race are CC Sabathia and Curtis Granderson. Um, we floated those two guys as guys we would like to be baseball commissioners because of the way that they think about the game and because of their their history of working with um, local communities to get kids the chance to play baseball. Um, they would be really interesting to talk to because they would have unique opinions on what their experience was like and how how it could be better now and how how it's even evolved since they were kids. You know. Um, I also feel like I got to talk to Scott Boris because like he profits off this world. I mean, not to put it too crudely, but like 
being able to get the most for these types of players that we would be following is the reason that he is a multimillionaire. And so um, how early he gets involved with players and trying to scoop them up for his agency and how he views this world developing and whether that's good or bad for the game um, would be really interesting. And then finally, uh, you guys talked about Selig because he was commissioner of baseball while this system was taking over the grassroots of this game. And, you know, Alex and I complain about uh, Rob Manfred a lot. And uh, if we were doing this podcast in 2003, if we were the first person to ever do a podcast about baseball, um, I, we would have just been crushing Bud Selig for letting stuff like this go on and, and letting this seed start be planted one and then start to develop and to wrap its tentacles around the game that we love because are you telling me that Bud Selig might have seen a serious problem and not done anything about it? That seems so unlike him. I don't want to slander the man, but... They should make a movie about that. I feel like baseball needs more top-down leadership. Like, baseball just shrugs at like, ah, oh, well, this is the way it is, and uh, we're just gonna... We're focused on making MLB better and and uh, instituting a pitch clock and all this other bullshit. Like, But we don't get a lot of, like, grass... like interaction from top down with like the grassroots of baseball and you know you gotta talk gotta talk to Bud Selig man you, you fucked up What's Bud Selig on? is a Westworld host who's just like it doesn't look like anything to me <laughs> <laughs> um, okay so we are running long on time so I'm gonna run through these last couple categories for me um, I, style it has to be it's gotta be like verite you know we just gotta follow these guys around um, interview style where like the players themselves would be probably interacting with with whoever the filmmaker is um, and then the medium I don't know I, I'm, I'm partial to Hulu on something like this just because I feel like what what they did with something like minding the gap where there's like like four different stories that they're telling all at once and and um, promoting that really well I feel like would would serve this type of documentary the best because there's the so fire many festival festival documentary that's i think yeah. i think that's the vibe you're going for right just a, actually, just absolute yes. dumpster fire of little league baseball that's the documentary that i'm going for <laughs> i think this could be totally like episodic though like i don't know if you're going to cover that but there's so just for how how much stuff that we have like sp- like spanned off into i feel like this could be there's so many different like episodes that you could look at with, with this as far as, um, you know, different aspects of it. Maybe, maybe you go like the boyhood route and like follow a handful of players <laughs> like over, I'm I'm kind of serious, like over five like or a 30 six year project. Or, like, well, I mean, this wouldn't take that long. If you take like five <laughs> or six or seven years and follow them from like, you know, 10, 11, 12 to like them graduating from high school and like what those next steps are. Um, yeah. It's something that would not take like a decade to put together, but I think would really show you. And you can, you can choose people who are coming from, uh, from different backgrounds too, right? Someone who decided to go the, the travel ball route and someone who decided to stay and stick it out in Little League or just try and grind elsewhere um, or who like wanted to go the travel ball route but didn't, but couldn't do it, couldn't shell out the thousands of dollars and like yeah. his dream ends there. Yeah, I, I think this doesn't, we'll just move on to the final category here. I just think this doesn't work as a scripted movie at all because one, the baseball would look terrible. Um, two, it would be too opinionated if it was like, if I wrote this movie, it would just be like listening to this podcast. Like I'd be like, this is horrible. This is a problem. And it would become preachy pretty fast. 
I think. Um, and then and then three, like if this is scripted, like where do you where do you even start in trying to get people interested in this? Brad Pitt. Like, what? <laughs> I want Brad Pitt. We yeah, found the Scroo- silver bullet. Screwball <laughs> had like 13-year-olds playing 30-year-olds, but I want Brad Pitt out there playing a 12-year-old little leaguer. Like do whatever you need to do, <laughs> CGI, like get him on Netflix the Netflix de-aging technology. <laughs> I have to go back yeah, and exactly. resell this to Netflix. <laughs> I think what you're saying with scripted though is like when you if you're doing a documentary on this, you don't want you don't want to put an opinion on someone or your opinion on someone. You want this to be read as is. And with what Alex was saying and doing it the boyhood route and seeing like the, the main question with this documentary is like, how does this pay off for these kids? Is, is this a good thing? So it would, you would love to see those kids 10 years later. How did going through this system actually affect their themselves as baseball players and just themselves as humans? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Because it really takes like a lot of this can take an, a mental toll on you. Like the, it, a lot is demanded of you when you're 15 years old. So yeah, I definitely think you're right. I want some like kind of retrospective, like how did that environment like shape who I am 10, 15 years out? All right, guys, I think we did it. I think we pitched three documentaries that are going to be accepted and adapted and um, bought for a lot of money. What do you think? I can't wait. I can't wait to get that money. That first that first check. <laughs> this is this is all with the assumption that the the first one we want to see is the the Vin Scully story, right? That's my that's my document. I want just Only 70 if it's years him of narrating Vin. now. <laughs> him is <laughs> narrating his own story. <laughs> yeah. Give Vin Scully a podcast actually. I think that's the medium he fits best on. Why don't more announcers have podcasts? Just to, just a breakout. I mean, Joe Buck just started a podcast, him excluded. But like, why don't the Mets broadcasters have a podcast? Good question. Well, that's our, that's our next. That's pitch. my take. Um, Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this was a lot of fun and uh, very informative. And I think that we came up with three and uh, all of our honorable mentions as well. So like twelve really good documentary ideas. Uh, give people a rundown on big screen sports where they can find it. What you do every week and. Um, where they can find your other work and content. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Any excuse to to talk baseball and and talk Brad Pitt's everything I've ever wanted. Um, big screen sports normally every Monday, just breaking down. Uh, it, it's sports movie talk. A lot of times, it is just taking an individual sports movie, breaking it down. What was authentic about it? What wasn't? And just you know what we liked about the movie, what we didn't. You know, breaking it down through a, a few categories. Just really an appreciation of sports movies. Um, that is, that is available wherever you get your podcast. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Banduho. It's B-A-N-D-U-J-O. And then my other podcast from Phenom to the Farm. It's an interview series, uh, presented by Baseball America. It's every other Tuesday. So far, I've been talking to guys who, current and ex-pros who signed out of high school, kind of what Bobby was talking about, that decision of, you know, why to sign, you know, how, how they weighed that. And then just their journey through the minor leagues, um, you know, their experiences, what they would do differently, what they would tell, you know, an 18 year old version of themselves, hoping to expand that series to guys who turned down money, went to college, guys who went to junior college and in the minors kind of, kind of expand on that. But that comes at you, um, every other Tuesday. Again, that's wherever, um, wherever you get your podcasts. And, uh, I think that, I think that, 
is all the word vomit I've got for you guys tonight. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's the run it. sheet. Yeah. Thanks all right, man. For coming thank on you so time. much. All right, thank you to Kyle Banduho. Thank you to you, Alex Basley. This this really made me want to be a sports documentarian. Like I came out of this and I'm like, damn, like this was the fun, like kind of brain exercise. And now I'm like, how do I get the funding to do this? Great pitches. I feel like we gave them away for free a little bit. Yeah. We, but we tipped honestly, our pitches, good. so to speak. That, we we did tip our pitches, but if anyone out there wants to, you know, has the backing to make base, please. I'm I'm just kind of mostly interested in seeing this. I think legally how this works is that if you say it on a podcast, no one's allowed to steal the idea, right? Right, yes, yes. There's a so, lot of law around that. So two crowdfunding campaigns. We're going to start one to buy the Mets and one, one to, to fund make, Kyle's to $150 fund million Kyle's. Dollar talk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Guys, we only need like $12 billion right now. If you can spare some change, I know nothing else is going on in the world. Yeah, I know. Times are tough. <laughs> uh, thank you for listening. As always, we will talk to you soon. Just boiling in